Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18 as we begin this series about the cross today, a series that will lead us right up to Easter Sunday. What actually happened on the cross? Why does it matter to this day? Why is it still the most important thing that ever happened in human history? And how should it change the way we live. I'm going to start in kind of an unusual way. I'm going to give you a quiz just to make sure you're awake and all your, all your pistons are firing. So we're going to flash five different logos on the screen, and I want to see if you recognize them. If you live in the United States and you have any contact outside your house, if you don't live under a rock, you'll probably recognize all five. But when you see them, I want you to say them out loud, okay? This is audience participation. So you ready? Okay, slide one. Very good. Y'all are real familiar with that one. Okay, number two. There you go. Okay, number three. Okay, number four. There you go. And number five. Okay, thank you. So, so where I got that, that's, that comes from a list of the most iconic logos in the world today. I didn't make up the list. Someone else did. But what you notice is all of these logos, they speak to something. They, they, they uh, give us sort of a, an image that this company wants to project. They want to show us something. They want us to think about them in a certain way. For instance, that Nike symbol, the swoosh, it symbolizes speed and agility. That's what they want you to believe about them. No company would choose a logo that refers to something embarrassing about themselves. For instance, you'll never see Apple. Uh, well, let's just imagine. What if Apple switched their logo to all of a sudden it became the low battery symbol? Because it would remind you, yeah, when I buy an iPhone, I'll spend eight or nine or a thousand thousand dollars of my own money, and uh, in a year I'm going to have to buy a new one because it's going to be dead. Um, or if McDonald's, their logo was a question mark with a with a McNugget as the little period at the bottom of the question mark, because they would be saying, yeah, even we don't know what's in these things. Uh, we we have no idea. Or or imagine that Nike, their logo was a small Asian child in a sweatshop. Did I go too far? Was that? I'm sorry. Um, but but you, get, you get what I'm saying, right? Companies, companies want to point us toward what is attractive, what uh, makes them feel good about themselves. Now imagine that marketing experts existed in the first century. And imagine they came looking for business to the first apostles, those first, uh, those first followers of Jesus who were establishing the movement of Christ. And imagine that they said to them, listen, we want to help you get your movement off the ground. Messaging is everything. We've got some great ideas for logos that would really speak in such a way that people would want to join the Christian faith and, and increase your numbers. So here's what we were thinking. Jesus was a miracle worker. That's one of the most attractive things about him. So how about, how about a, a, a loaf of bread and a fish? Because that would remind people of an amazing thing he did. Or, or maybe sort of a silhouette of someone walking on water. I mean, we want people to know Jesus is powerful. Or if you don't like that one, uh, how about his, his authority and his coming kingdom? So we could, you know, the whole lion of Judah, that's a really good idea. So how about a, a kind of a, a profile of a roaring lion? Wouldn't that work? Or maybe, maybe just a crown, you know, because people are attracted to power and the fact that he's going to be king of the world. People want to get in on that on the ground floor. Now imagine the disciples and, and all the followers of Jesus sort of talk this over and say, no, we're going to go with the cross. The marketing experts would say, no, anything but a cross. Y'all realize what the cross was in the first century, right? 
Nobody in the first century would have said, oh yes, this should be the logo of a new movement, of a new religion, a new, a new uh, group of people who are trying to change the world. They'd say, why would, you, why would you select that? People in the first century had seen people crucified. This was not an attractive image. This was not an attractive logo. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a major city in Greek. There's a lot to tell you about the church in Corinth. I don't, unfortunately, have time this morning. Uh, but the Corinthian church was very successful for its time. It was growing. It was wealthy. It was prominent. There were a lot of very gifted people there. And yet, it was a church with tons and tons and tons of problems. As a pastor, every time I read the book of First and Second Corinthians, I always think, man, thank God I do not pastor that church. They had so many issues. They were, there, was, there was sexual immorality in the church. There was deep, deep division in the church. There was hip, hypocrisy. There were, there were you know, wealthy members of the church who were, who were shaming the poor members of the church. There was all kinds of stuff going on. So much so that Paul writes this letter to address head-on the things going on in the congregation because he knew that on a given Sunday, the pastor was going to get up in front of the church in Corinth and he was going to read Paul's letter. Can you imagine being there on that Sunday? And listening as an apostle designated by Jesus himself says, here's the problems I have with you, and here's how you need to change them. And in fact, they were so messed up, he had to write to them twice. There's the second letter of the Corinthians too. But here at the beginning of the letter, listen to what he says. He doesn't address any of their issues, any of their named issues. He addresses something deeper. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here's your sermon in a sentence. You ready for this? The cross is offensive to everyone. It was then, it is now. But we must preach the cross today more than ever. So I want to touch on both of those things. Let's talk about why is the cross so offensive? Why was it offensive in the ancient world? Why does Paul start the book of 1 Corinthians by talking about here's how important the cross is? Because obviously the Corinthian church had stopped preaching the cross of Christ. And as I'm going to share with you, I think that's a temptation we as churches, I as a pastor, any other church, we stumble into sometimes unwittingly. Why? As Paul says, there were Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, as he calls them, in the Corinthian church, like most churches of that time. And when he says Greeks, I want you to understand he's not talking about ethnically Greek people, although the Corinthians were Greeks. See, in the ancient world, the ancient Middle East, you should, I should say, Greek culture ruled. Another way to look at it is today, if you go to another country, you'll notice a lot of things that refer to American culture. You'd be surprised. You'll be surprised to see people watching American television, listening to American music. This is a true story. Last year, we took a mission trip to Poma Bamba, Peru, which is way up in the Andes Mountains. I mean, it it is so far from what I would consider civilization, so far from anything American. The, The whole culture is different. And yet, in downtown Poma Bamba, the town square, I'm walking through there one day, and somebody's jamming Uh, uptown funk on their stereo. 
American culture is everywhere. See, in the ancient world, Greek culture was everywhere. Everyone spoke the Greek language. Everyone dressed in Greek fashion, went to Greek plays and read Greek literature and ate Greek food. So Paul is talking to Jews because Jews were stubborn. They, they clung to their own culture. They didn't let themselves be uh, corrupted by, by this Greek culture. So, so he says, okay, you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles. You've got Jews and you've got Greeks. Well, to the Jews, the cross was offensive. He calls it a stumbling block. The actual word he uses in Greek is scandalon. That's where I get my title of the message today from, the scandal of the cross. Scandalon is a word that literally means a, a roadblock you can't get over. And let me, let me express it this way. So imagine you have a young female friend who comes to you one day and says, good news, I'm engaged. And you say, oh, really? Congratulations. Tell me about him. I haven't met this guy. Now imagine she says, well, you know, he's a good guy, but, you know, you may not be, there's a few things you might not like about him. He's, he's shorter than me, and he doesn't make a ton of money, um, and he doesn't not drive a nice car, and, you know, he, he you know, his teeth are a little crooked. He's got a unibrow. He's not the best-looking guy. Uh, and you would say, you know, that's not a big deal. All that, all that superficial stuff. As long as you love him, then I'll love him. I'm happy for you. But if, on the other hand, your female friend said to you, yeah, he's a good guy, but, you know, he's got a bit of a temper. Every once in a while, he hits me. And never really hard. I mean, I don't have to go to the hospital or anything. And, I, and you know, frankly, I kind of deserve it. And he's always really nice afterwards. If you're any kind of friend at all, you'd say, no, you can't marry this guy. I will not let you marry this guy. I cannot get past this. You will never celebrate that relationship knowing what she just told you. That is your stumbling block. For the Jews, belief in Jesus seemed impossible because of the cross. And Paul understood this better than anybody. He was a proud Jew himself. Before he met Jesus, he was fiercely opposed to the Christian faith for this very reason, because Deuteronomy 21-23 says these words, Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. In your Bible reading plan, you probably read it this last week. Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. Cursed means God rejects this person. God has cursed this person. And to a, to a Jew like Paul, to, to a devout Jew, uh, the idea that someone could be nailed to a, a, a stick of wood Planted in the ground is no different than being hung from a noose attached to a tree. Either way, it was a sign. As Paul says, Jews seek for signs. See, if you were a devout Jew in the first century, and most Jews in the first century were devout, what mattered more than anything else was, am I doing what is right? Am I living a righteous life? Does God approve of me? That's why Paul says they seek signs. I want a sign that says, I am living the way that I should. And when they considered, who should I follow? Who is really Messiah? The number one question was, does God approve of this man? And for a Jew, they looked at Jesus and saw, he's been crucified. Well, then the question is answered. He's been cursed by God. It says so in the word. There's no way he can be Messiah. Next week, we'll talk about how it's possible that Jesus could be cursed by God, actually in two weeks, and still be the Savior of the world. But for now, just know that was a stumbling block for the Jews. For the Greeks, it was different. See, Greeks were every bit as religious as the Jews, but if you remember Greek mythology from your high school English class, the Greek gods were not righteous. They weren't like the one true God, the God of the Bible. Greek gods were less righteous than you and me. I mean, Greek gods were like college students on spring break, given eternal power. It was a nightmare. Um, and, and so to the Greeks, what mattered wasn't righteousness, it was success. As Paul says, they seek wisdom. And I know when you read the Scriptures, you, you, you see that word wisdom as a good thing. And it is, but the Greeks meant it in this sense. 
Greeks discussed and argued and debated over what is the best philosophy of life. What is going to get me wealth and happiness and security and peace and power? Is it Epicureanism? Is it Stoicism? Is it some other philosophy? They were always talking about, here's the latest plan, the latest philosophy, the latest, uh, the latest path to greatness. Does it work? So their question wasn't, does God approve? The question was, does it work? Does it bring success? When they looked at Jesus, they saw a man who had not succeeded. They saw a man who'd been nailed to a cross. Y'all, just quick personal embarrassing story about myself. In high school, my high school had a junior-senior prom. So my junior year, it was about this time of year, prom was coming up in about a month, and I suddenly realized to my horror, oh no, I don't have a date to the prom. I don't have a girlfriend. There's nobody I'm really crushing on. I don't really know who to ask. Um, If I don't have a date, it's a small school. Everybody's going to know I'm going to be kind of a social outcast. So I sort of did some mental calculus. I'm like, okay, who is attractive enough that I would enjoy being with them, but not so attractive that she's out of my league? And so I kind of did that math, and there was a list of girls, and I kind of excluded the ones who were already going with somebody. And then so I got got to the front of the list, and I called that girl, and I asked her to the prom. And she said, well, let me think about it. I didn't know, because I was male, I didn't know that when a girl says, I'll think about it, what she really means is, let me see if I get a better offer. And so I I let that play out for like a week before I realized, oh, this isn't happening. So I, I went to the next one on the list. She said, nope, sorry, I'm already, I've already been asked. Went to the third on the list. She just flat said no. And so I was like, okay, take a breath, go to school tomorrow, come back, ask girl number four. But before I could, at school that day, true story, guy comes up to me, big smile on his face. He says, hey, Burger, so I hear that you've been turned down by like every girl in school, huh? And, and, you know, my heart stopped and my, my stomach shriveled up into a little prune. And I, I thought to myself, oh, no, girls talk about this stuff? They don't, you know, there's not like some code of silence? And you, you have no idea. I wanted, to, I wanted to just dig a hole and bury myself in it. I never wanted to see anybody's face again. I felt like such a fool. People were laughing at me. The good news is it's high school. And in high school, there's somebody you're making fun of every five minutes. So, you know, they forgot about me by Friday. I was fine. Um, But in the ancient world, where everything revolved around the, the continuum between honor on the one hand and shame on the other, to be made a fool of like I was that day was worse than death. You would sooner die than have someone think you were foolish, to have someone think you were a failure. The Greeks looked at Jesus And they saw someone who was nailed to a cross. You know what happened on the cross? It wasn't just a place of physical agony. It wasn't a place, just a place where they they extracted the most exquisite, every little drop of pain from a human being. That was it, yes. But they also took away your dignity and your humanity. They made you look ridiculous. If you had a hero who was a criminal of some kind and you saw him crucified, you saw him nailed naked to a cross, you wouldn't think he was so heroic anymore. And that's what they did to Jesus. And so every Greek who heard the story of Jesus would say, why would I follow someone who'd failed? Why would I follow someone whose own people turned on him and nailed him to a cross? What about today? I mean, we've got crosses everywhere today. Movie stars and athletes wear them on chains around their necks or on, on, on earrings. 
Baseball players do the sign of the cross before they get into a batter's box. Lots of people I know, including me, have decorative crosses in our homes. There's a cross on the steeple of this church, just like there is on dozens of other churches in this county. So, of course, the cross isn't offensive anymore, right? Actually, it is. Not so much the sign, because we see the sign of the cross as nothing big. We've forgotten what it means. The message of the cross, however, as Paul says in verse 18, the word of the cross is still folly. It's still foolishness. But why? Well, because some of us, a lot of us here in America, think alike Greeks. We admire success. We love to follow people who've made it to the top. And Jesus didn't do that. Remember that movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ? In 2004, it came out. Such a graphic depiction of the crucifixion. You know that's still, as far as I know, still the, the, the most profitable rated R movie ever put out? Just a powerful piece of cinema. Some of you watched it multiple times. Some of you could only watch it once. It was just too, too graphic. But I remember people being deeply offended by this movie. Some of them, because they thought Mel Gibson, the director, was an anti-Semite, as it turns out, they were right. But more people were offended by the movie because they said, as they said to me, many people said to me, I don't like it because it's just about death. It's just about torture. It's just about blood. And didn't Jesus come and do great miracles? Didn't he come and teach beautiful things? These are both believers and unbelievers saying this to me. One said, it's, it's sort of like a snuff film. It's just 90 minutes of death. And I would say to them, but that's the whole point. Jesus' death is the reason he came. Without his death, his life doesn't matter. He came to rescue us by his death from our sins. And again, we'll talk more in, in greater detail in the rest of this series about how he accomplished that through his death. But what my point to you is, the people I said this to, they didn't like that argument. They said, well, I, no, Jesus was more than that. He, he, his life matters. And you know Why? You know why they couldn't accept the fact that Jesus' death was the most important thing he ever did? Because deep down inside, we don't want to be rescued. We want to think we're our own heroes. We're the heroes of our own story, that we can do it. And the cross won't let us get away with that kind of thinking. The cross is a, a big iron-clad uh, symbol that says, you can't do it. The cross says, there's no self-help plan, there's no new philosophy, there's no religion, there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself and make your life what it ought to be. Only the cross can do that, only Jesus. There's no, there's no political philosophy, there's no education system, there's no technological advancement that's going to solve all the problems of this world. Only Jesus, when he comes as king of this world, can do that. The lamb who, who was slain. Only he can do that. And on the other hand, there's a lot of us, especially people like us, who are longtime churchgoers, and we're more Greek in the way, more Jewish in the way we think than Greek. It's not that we have anything against success, and some of you are very successful, but it's just that righteousness matters more. That's the way we've been trained. We've been told, what does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And so for us, the ultimate sign of success is someday I want to stand before God and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that a, a good way to think? Absolutely. The problem is when we become religious without the cross, when we, we get to where it's all about following these rules, it's all about doing these rituals, it's all about believing these doctrines, but we forget the bloody hands and feet of our Savior. We forget the cost of our salvation. We forget, I didn't earn this. 
In fact, I'm going to say something to you that's going to offend some of you, I guarantee right now. We forget that all the right doctrine you believe, all the good deeds you've ever done, all the religious activities you've ever participated in, including your baptism, including showing up here to church, including going to Bible study, including prayers and tithes and, and all those good things, all of those things put together did not change God's feeling toward you one bit. Did not make Him love you one bit more. Did not absolve you from one single sin. All of your salvation, 100%, was due to the blood shed on the cross, and that is it. And that's all you have. That is all you have. And boy, that is, that is something that just tends to crush our self-righteousness, doesn't it? And we don't like that. And so, and so we, we prefer sermons that are a little more uh, maybe Greek-based, where, hey, tell us how to be successful. Tell me, tell me three principles on, on how to have a happier marriage. Tell me five principles on how to have little Stepford children who act perfect and make good grades and grow up to put me in a nice nursing home someday. Um, tell, me, tell me ten principles on how to get rich based on the Bible because surely we can mine the wisdom of Scripture to have our best life now, right? I mean, that's there. That's what it's for. The cross is foolishness compared to that in our minds. Or, or we want sermons where we're, it's all about how good we are and how evil the world is. And hey, let's, let's band together so we can fight back against those evil heathens out there who want to take over everything. Or, or let's do sermons that are all about right and wrong. Tell me, tell me what sin. I want, to, I want to hear sermons about sin. Are there commands in Scripture? Yes. Do they still apply? Till the end of the, de- till the, end of the world, they will apply. But if all we have are rules, we're lost. If all we have are rules, just little check boxes where we can say, yes, I've done that, I've done that, I'm better than him, I'm better than her, we're not following Jesus anymore. We need the cross. So why do we need it so badly? That's why the cross is so offensive, but why do we need to keep preaching the cross today more than ever before? Because without the cross, we forget who we are and we forget who God is. See, there's an interesting statement Paul makes in verse 25. There, that last verse we read, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, weakness of God is stronger than men. See, if you read that and the first time you see it, you might think, oh, so God has like a weak side, right? Then God has a foolish side. Is that what he's saying? No, that's heresy. God has no weakness. God has no foolishness. So what is Paul saying? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, what is Paul saying? Well, here's what he's saying. Remember, remember how I felt when I found out everyone in school was laughing at me because I couldn't get a date to the prom? You've been there, right? Please tell me you've been there. Please, come on. You've experienced something like that where you felt ridiculed, where you felt shamed, embarrassed. Wouldn't you do anything to never feel that way again? Jesus voluntarily was made a fool of. He let them mock him. He let them shame him. He let them make him look like an object of ridicule. And he did nothing to validate himself, to strike back, to say, oh no, not me. He let them put him to shame because he knew that's what it would take. In his Allowing himself to become foolish, he accomplished more 
than all the philosophers, all the professors, all the geniuses of the world put together. He did what they could never come up with. He came up with a way to reconcile God and man and overcome everything that separated us from the eternal life God has planned for us. At the same time, Jesus had more strength, more power than anyone who's ever existed. Jesus created an entire universe with spoken words. If you don't believe me, look at John chapter 1. In the beginning it was the Word. Nothing was made apart from the Word, and that was Jesus. He could have done anything He wanted. And yet He allowed weak and stupid men to beat Him, mock Him, spit in His face, Nail him to a cross. He went from all-powerful, as Philippians 2 said, to someone who had emptied himself of all of his heavenly prerogative, taking on a body just as frail as mine that could be beaten, that could be bruised, that could be crushed, that could be pierced, that could be killed. And in becoming weak for our sake, voluntarily losing for our sake, he did what all the armies of the world All the strong men who've ever lived could not do. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the powers of evil forever. That's what we'll talk about next week. He did it all through a display of intentional weakness. His weakness is stronger than man's strength. That's who he is. He is a God who refuses to lose you, even if he has to lose himself. So what does it say about us? What does the cross tell us about who we are? The cross shows us that no matter what you see when you look in the mirror or how you feel about that image, no matter what you hear when you read social media and how you feel about yourself, no matter what people have said about you, your parents, kids at school, your ex, your boss, that little voice in your head, no matter how you feel about yourself, whether your view of yourself is inflated or whether it's Nothing. Here's the truth about you and the truth about me. You are more lost and hopeless than you ever feared, but you are more loved than you ever dared to dream. The cross means you need him every single day, every day you wake up. It's not just for getting saved. It's for every single day saying, Jesus, I need your blood to forgive me for all the things I did yesterday, and I'm naming them one by one, and I need your grace to give me the strength to do better today. Keep making me like you. Keep renovating my heart. See, the cross says, best of all, there is nothing you can ever do to make him love you any less than he does right now, and there's nothing you can ever do to make him love you any more. That's why we've got to preach the cross. That's why we can't stop sharing the gospel message in every sermon, in every life group. That's why we're about to take the Lord's Supper. That's why the cross matters. 